0: Now our scripture reading will be taken from Romans chapter 1, if you would open your Bibles there please. Romans chapter 1, we'll be looking at verses 18 to 20 as we continue on in this tremendous theological treatise that we know as the book of Romans. Beginning at verse 18, we see another conjunction for, and that is connected to the fact that the righteousness of God has been revealed. And it's a faith system of righteousness. That's how you get the righteousness of God through faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of that text and the exposition of it later. Will you join with me, please, in prayer? Heavenly Father, we bow before thee today to thank you so much for all of the blessings that you've given to us. You've been so gracious and merciful to us over the years. And quite honestly, Lord, we don't deserve any of it. We praise you for who you reveal yourself to be in the scriptures. We praise you for every one of your attributes that make you who you are. We don't want to in any way shirk or limit any of the attributes, but just accept what you reveal about yourself, what you reveal here in Romans. Lord, this is Labor Day weekend in this country in which most people celebrate the social economic achievements of the American worker. But... Also, in Labor Day weekend, most leave you out of those achievements. It's you who've allowed this nation to be discovered. It's you who gave men their skills and gifts. It's you who gave us our prosperity and our possessions. It's you that gave us our resources and our freedom. It was you that did this. And what we've done here is demeaned you, we've eliminated you, we've mocked you, we've tried to take credit for what you've done frankly lord we look at ourselves in this country we're a pathetic disaster what we certainly deserve is your wrath what we don't deserve is your grace and lord we would ask that you would just take note of that remnant of your people all over this land who do love you and do love your word there are churches lord all over this country all over the world that really do love you and reverence you and love your word take notice of them turn minds of leaders of this nation to make decisions that will help your people. Don't allow the leaders of this nation to get consumed with power and money. And we pray that you would prompt them to be consumed with their responsibility, to honor you, to make decisions that will enable you to bless your people. Lord, we thank you that we have the privilege of praying for one another. We want to pray for those that are sick Lord, we have several in this church that are in that state right now. We pray that you would grant your healing grace. We want to pray for those that are having surgery. We think of Wayne Van Til's daughter who's having open-heart surgery this very morning. We pray that that would be successful. We pray for those that are distraught, they're going through emotional crisis. We pray that you would grant them joy. We pray for those who have needs, that you would grant them jobs and income, and we pray for our own spirituality, Lord. We need growth, and we need to continue to grow until we get out of this world, and so we pray that you would grant that to us. And then, Lord, we would pray as we do that you would just come get us soon. Come get us soon. In Jesus' name, amen. Not long ago, I was reading a book on evangelism, and the book said we need to come up with creative ways and creative means and creative programs to meet the individual spiritual needs of people so that we can give them the gospel. One concept that is often presented in evangelism is that people need to immediately know that God loves them, and then we need to develop a way to actually show them that. They need to hear things that are positive, like if you want fun and if you want freedom and if you want to good life, and if you want the best friend you can ever have, invite the Lord into your life, he'll go to the beach with you. Apparently, Paul didn't get that memo, and he didn't take that course on evangelism. He must have overlooked that creative way of thinking in the highly educated religious world of positive thinking and political correctness, in fact, people don't really like this hellfire brimstone type of preaching. Can you imagine someone telling Paul, who wrote the gospel of God, hey, you need to come up with some creative ways to evangelize the lost. You need to tone it down. You need to figure out a way to inform people that God loves them. Paul's view was that there's one way to evangelize the lost, and that's preach the gospel. In fact, that's what he said. I'm obligated to preach the gospel. He said earlier in the previous verses that I'm eager to preach the gospel. And then he said, as we saw last time, I'm not ashamed to preach the gospel. I'm not ashamed to preach the gospel of God, and you need to understand what the gospel of God is. And as I preach this gospel, I'm going to start off with a discussion of God's righteousness and God's wrath. People need to understand this, ladies and gentlemen. You need to understand this point. You must have the righteousness of God. And you can't get it by works or religion or anything else other than faith in Jesus Christ. But you must have that righteousness. Because if you don't have that righteousness, God's wrath is aimed at you. Now Paul said the gospel I preach, I got directly from Jesus Christ. He didn't get this gospel from listening to men. He said, I got this gospel that I'm revealing directly from Jesus Christ. And as he begins to unlock it, he doesn't start talking about the love of God. He starts talking about the wrath of God. He wanted every single individual to realize God's wrath is aimed straight at every sinner. And since we're all sinners... God's wrath is aimed at every one of us. And by the way, his wrath is not some emotional, irrational loss of temper like someone has when they lose their minds. God's wrath is very, very precise. It's part of his character. It's calculated. It's holy. It's high. Paul says, I'm not ashamed to come to Rome and preach the gospel, and we're going to start by talking about the wrath of God because what lost people need to hear, and what lost people need to know is that God's grace is a gospel of God's wrath. We need the righteousness of God. We deserve the wrath of God. Paul says, I'm going to start out with that. And what he is going to show is that the Lord Jesus Christ is the only one who can take away the wrath of God, which this communion service beautifully illustrates this morning And the Lord Jesus Christ is the only one who can give us the righteousness of God. Just remember this. Jesus Christ came to save from sin. He didn't come to initially cause friendships. He died on the cross for sins. That's what he's dying there for. Whose sins? Our sins. Something has to be done about our sin if we're going to have a relationship with God. And Paul wanted every sinner to realize if you do not do something about that sin state, If you do not have the righteousness of God, you're heading to the wrath of God. In fact, he said in Ephesians, we are by nature children of wrath. See, most people don't get that. They don't understand that. They're driving through life, living life, not realizing the wrath of God is on you. You know, I had a driver cut me off the other day. Boy. I still have a sin nature, a good one, (laughs) (laughs) Or, or, or a bad one, as it may be. And so when this driver did that, I mean, this driver is oblivious to anything that is going on around this person. And I won't give the gender, but it was a person that was completely oblivious to what was going on. I started yelling at that driver, in my car, at the top of my lungs, and that driver had no clue I was doing it. No clue. I think that's the way it is with most people about the wrath of God. They're just oblivious, going through life, thinking it's just going to turn out okay. They are totally oblivious to the fact that God's wrath is on them, And if they do not do something about that sin state, if they do not something to have the righteousness of God, God's wrath is aimed straight at them, and God's wrath is going to hit them and hit them hard. Now, this message is getting lost in this twisted love world of religion culture that you and I live. But I want to remind us of something. When John the Baptist, who was the forerunner of Jesus Christ, showed up to introduce Jesus Christ... His message was, flee from the wrath to come. Not flee to the one who loves you. Flee from the wrath to come. When Jonah ended up going into Nineveh with his message that in 40 days God's anger would come upon them, he said, the wrath of God is going to overthrow you. So the first thing they're communicating is is you need to understand you're in danger of experiencing the wrath of God. Now somehow, in this politically correct world of ours, we've lost sight of what the gospel really is. The apostle Paul who writes the gospel does not say, let me hear about your personal needs and hurts. Let me figure out how I can best work in or sneak in the gospel message into the conversation. Paul said, here's what you need to understand. You need the righteousness of God because the wrath of God is aimed at you. And it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter how religious you've been. It doesn't matter how good you think you are. It doesn't matter if you're a boy or girl, a man or woman, all need to know that point. You need the righteousness of God because the wrath of God is aimed at you. Now, there are two Greek words that are used in connection with the wrath of God. The first is thumas in Greek, which is a word that does have to do with a passion, an emotional surge of wrath that is often used by God, but God's surge of wrath and anger is justified and it's perfectly holy in a character that's perfect. And the second is orge. And the particular word orge is the wrath that's volitional, it's intentional, it's deliberate, it's very thought out. The one that's used here is orge. And here's what that means. If a person does not have the righteousness of God that is only found by faith in Christ, it's not works, it's not religion, it's not keeping man's traditions, it's not by the ordinances, it's only found by faith in Jesus Christ. If a person does not have that righteousness, God's calculated, intentional wrath is aimed straight at that sinner. God's disposition against one without Christ is one of wrath. It's not love, it's not forgiveness, it's not mercy, it's not grace, it's not toleration, it is wrath. Now there is a saying that people need to understand something about because it kind of just gets lost in a maze of theological thinking. God hates the sin but loves the sinner. God hates the sin but loves the sinner. Well, there's part truth to that in the sense that God loved sinners enough to put his son on that cross to die for them so that he could give them the righteousness they need so that they could have a relationship with him. But he doesn't love those who've rejected his son. The people who've not received his son, who've rejected his son, are not under the love of God. They're under the wrath of God. They're children of wrath. That's what Paul called them. God doesn't love people who look at the sacrifice that his son made for people and reject it and think they're going to somehow work out a deal with him. His wrath is aimed at those people. And what Paul writes here is God's calculated wrath is upon every sinner and the only way to be saved from the wrath is believe in Jesus Christ and receive the righteousness of God that's only found in him. Now, some people might say, Well, the word gospel is good news, so what kind of good news is that message? Well, this is God's way of starting off his grace message. The gospel message is good news because it basically is a message that says you can have a life that is not going to be subject to the wrath of God. But you need to know about the wrath of God. You need to understand that if you don't have the righteousness of God, you are under the wrath of God. Now, suppose you wanted to be a doctor, And as you go through medical school, you told your instructors, I only want to be a doctor if I can tell my patients good news. Well, the instructor would say, well, if you want to be a doctor, you're going to have to tell your patients the truth. And sometimes the truth is going to be bad news. Your patients will need to hear the bad news so that we can present to them the treatment that will be good news. Well, suppose the student says, I'm not going to do it. Well, the medical board would say, you're not going to be a doctor. You can't be a doctor if you're not willing to tell the truth. Now, suppose some minister says, I only want to tell people good news, good stuff. I only want to tell them about the love of God and the forgiveness of God and the toleration of God and the grace of God and the mercy of God, that he loves you just the way you are. Paul says, well, then you can't be a minister of God. Because part of the job of a minister is you tell people the truth. And the truth is, apart from Jesus Christ, they're under the condemnatory wrath of God. They're under the judgment of God. Now, verse 18 begins this section in Romans that goes from here until chapter 3 and verse 20. And we're going to march through it in the next weeks. The theme of the section is not a positive theme, it's not a popular theme, because the theme of it is all mankind stands guilty before God, and all mankind is under the wrath of God. That's the theme of that section. He'll break it into subdivided groups. He'll say the heathen people, they're guilty before God, the religious people are guilty before God, the moral people are guilty before God, all are guilty before God. That's where he's headed with all of this. Donald Gray Barnhouse called this section the charge of the prosecution and the case against man. Dr. S. Lewis Johnson called this section all mankind on death row. Dr. Charles Ryrie called this section God's indictment of the world. Dr. C.I. Schofield called this section the whole world guilty before God. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this is the most perfect summary of the history of man that's ever found in the Bible. God is sovereign judge and jury. God is the one who assesses humans. God is the one who assesses mankind. And as he looks at mankind, he says, you're all guilty. You're all condemned. You're all heading to my wrath. Doesn't matter what the gender, what the ethnicity, what the religion or the sin, all are guilty. One may be an immoral sinner or a moral sinner. One may be a religious person or non-religious person. One may be a man or a woman, a boy, a girl, a Jew or Gentile. One could be red, yellow, black, brown, or white. God's conclusion, you're all guilty. You're all under my wrath. You're all condemned. Apart from my righteousness, that's only found by faith in Jesus Christ. You're under my wrath. You're heading to my wrath. And I want you to notice that verse 18 does begin with that conjunction for, which connects us to the preceding verse. So, What this means is the righteousness of God, which is a faith means of righteousness, is revealed and known by the wrath of God. So without the wrath of God, you cannot really know about the righteousness of God. And if you want to see the most perfect example of where that righteousness of God is revealed by wrath, look at that cross of Jesus Christ. Look at this communion service, which is why Paul said, you celebrate this until the Lord returns. You celebrate communion. You remember what he did until the Lord returns. There are two things that meet there in living color, the righteousness of God and the wrath of God. Jesus Christ is hanging on that cross, experiencing the totality of God's wrath. He's taking upon him our sin. He's taking upon him God's wrath He's the perfect righteous God hanging on that cross. And at that moment, he cries out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? There is a perfect spot right there. There's the greatest example of the righteousness of God clearly connected to the wrath of God that you can ever see. So Paul says, I'm starting off by talking about this. You need to understand this. You need the righteousness of God that you can't get by yourself. It only comes by faith in the Lord because you're under the wrath of God. So either the wrath of God's going to be on him or it's going to be on you. Now, there are two key points that he wants to bring out. First of all, the righteousness of God and the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. Verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven... And I just want to stop right there and talk about this. The righteousness of God is revealed. So He can't say, and a lot of people will go back in past history and say, well, there have been moments where God has revealed his wrath from heaven. I mean, there was a Sodom and Gomorrah episode. He got fed up with them, and he destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah there and passed. And there were moments when he got fed up with his own people, like in the Achan sin, and he opens up the earth and swallows up people there, and there's a display of the anger, and there's the wrath of God. But the problem is the verb is present tense. I mean, he's basically saying that the righteousness of God is revealed right now. The righteousness of God and the wrath of God is revealed right now. And frankly, I'm not happy with any commentary I've read on this theme, and I own a lot of them. And it seems to me they try to dance around this, but what is clearly stated here is God is a righteous God, and he is right now in the present time inflicting his wrath on people. He's inflicting his wrath on humans that are not interested in a relationship with him. Now, we've had the privilege of going through all these books of the Bible, so we kind of do know what God does do when he pours out his wrath. And we're certainly seeing that in the book of Revelation. So when he pours out his wrath in the book of Revelation, he allows people to be deceived by false religion. We know that. When he pours out his wrath, he allows people to die in all kinds of ways. Literally die. When he pours out his wrath, he causes disasters to hit in various places. Diseases. He causes diseases, plagues, to hit in various locations. He causes, as it were, a disregard and a lack of knowledge of his word. And you look at that, and you look around at our world, and you go, well, you know, Boy, most people aren't really serious about God and His Word. There does seem to be a dominance of religion that doesn't really get serious about the Word of God. And you have, boy, you sure have murders taking place at an unusual level. I mean, you got a guy who goes in, and kills his wife, little girl, and kills himself in Kalamazoo over the week. You're going, that's not normal. Then you look around and you see people who lack food, and inflation is skyrocketing. I mean, you've got murder. You have strange things that are happening. Hatred brewing. And you're thinking, you know what? When I stack that stuff up against what God says are demonstrations of his wrath, it is right there. It's right there. Yeah, God is sovereignly allowing things to happen here that demonstrate he has a wrath side to him. Now, people don't want to think about that. They don't want to know about a God who has a wrath side, but that's the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible does have a wrath side, and that wrath side is being revealed from heaven continually. Just look around and see it. When you look around at this world, you can certainly conclude God isn't happy with this world. He's not happy and blessing what's going on. It's like he's angry. It's like his wrath is being poured out. Things are happening that are scary. And God said, that's my wrath being revealed. The second point is the righteousness of God and wrath of God is revealed upon all ungodly and unrighteous men. The text says, against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Now, he'll conclude that all men are sinful and all men are guilty. He'll bring this to a conclusion, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But let's face it, we're seeing right now in our world a moral decline that really is reaching new levels of evil. I mean, we're seeing stuff that we're not normally seeing. I mean, we see things that we read and see and hear. I mean, we have to have security in a church. Security in a church. 22 years ago, you wouldn't have thought of this. At this church, and we have great security. We don't broadcast it. I guess we just did. (laughs) That may not have been one of my wiser moves there. Uh, But we have it. Why do we have to have that? Because there is an ungodly, irreverent group. There are people committed to wicked, evil things that exist here. We learn of killings and shootings and robberies and drugs and sex crimes like we've never heard of before. And God says, my wrath is aimed straight at that and everyone who does it. And it is done by people. And I know that saying, God hates the sin but loves the sinner. No, 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 you get involved in that stuff, and you're the one doing the sin, the wrath is aimed at you, not the sin, you, the one who's doing it. Apart from Jesus Christ and having the righteousness of God, God's wrath is aimed at every ungodly and unrighteous thing that a person has ever done, and it's aimed at that person, and all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So the wrath of God is aimed at us. And then Paul says, I'll tell you why God is justified in doing this. There are two reasons. First of all, because men suppress the truth. He says in verse 18, of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. See, the righteousness of God and the wrath of God is revealed upon all ungodly and unrighteous men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And what that tells us is people have an awareness of what is right. They suppress it. The specific truth they suppress is about their unrighteousness and their ungodliness and their need to be right with God. Listen, don't kid yourself. People love their sin. They don't want to be confronted with the word of God that confronts it. They don't want to be confronted with the word of God that tells them to turn from their sin. They want to suppress that. In fact, I would go so far as to say every truth that has ever come from the word of God has been suppressed. Every truth that's ever come from the word of God has been disregarded, disobeyed, deliberately forsaken. I years ago talked with a believer who was in carnality, another zone of carnality that most believers never get to. And I confronted this believer with this carnality. His life was falling apart. I mean, totally falling apart. And I said, you need to turn your life over to the Lord. Instead of acknowledging the reason why his life is falling apart is because God's heavy hand of chastisement was on him, he tried to disregard that type of talk and persisted in his unrighteous ways. That's what people do. When they're confronted with truth, they suppress it. And what is stated here is they hold back the truth about God's righteousness and wrath. They come up with their own ideas about, oh, God's never going to do anything bad to us. God's never going to chastise me. They actually stand against the righteousness of God. No thought whatsoever that things are going to become miserable in my world. You confront people with truth and, well, I've got my own way of thinking. What people do who love their sin is they suppress the idea that God is a righteous God and they suppress the idea that God has a wrath side. So they make up their own concept of God. Or they don't think there is a God. They deny God. Why? Because they want to stay in their sin. They don't want to have to admit there's God. Because the moment you admit there's God and the Bible's the word of God, that's the moment you realize I'm not in a right relationship with him. And people don't want to hear that. They suppress that. Paul said, I'm perfectly just in presenting this wrath side of God because men don't want to hear it. They suppress the truth. And secondly, they reject the truth that God has revealed to them, because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God has made it evident to them, for since the creation of the world is invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. The righteousness of God and the wrath of God is revealed because of the inexcusable evidence God has given to man. And God says, I have made known my righteousness and wrath, and I have put it within people. I've programmed it within them. In other words, the word evident or manifest that's used two times in this verse is one that means I've made this clear to them. It's very visible to them. I've given very plain data of my existence to every human being that's ever been born. I've actually programmed into them this intuition of me, and also I've programmed into them this idea that there is a judgment coming. God says, no man has an excuse for not knowing that, because I put that knowledge within him. And that knowledge that's within him is very specific knowledge. In fact, he says, I've revealed to them three divine realities. Number one, I've revealed in every person knowledge of my invisible attributes. That's what he says. He says, for since the creation of the world, since the creation of the world, we're talking Genesis 1 here, since he made the world, since then he created Adam and Eve, and then you've got this progeny of humanity, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes. He said, I have made my invisible attributes known to people by day one. Now John, the gospel writer, said no man has seen God, but we've sure seen evidence of God. No man has physically seen God, but they've seen evidence of his amazing attributes and power. God has put within every human being the knowledge of his existence, and they can see it. People see it every day in creation. They look at little animals, those little animals that getting ready to go into winter, and they're doing things now. They're scurrying around. They're picking up stuff and building homes they're going to live in. I mean, from animals to humans testify of the sovereignty of God that you can't see. There's a consciousness within every human being that says there is God. He is a righteous God. Secondly, God has revealed in every person knowledge of his eternal power. He said, and I've revealed, put within people, knowledge of my eternal power. Now, I want to talk about that for a second, because I just listened to a lecture by an idiot out of Harvard. (laughs) So, I'm in a good position to analyze this. God makes it very clear I created the mountains. I mean, he makes that clear. Amos 4.13, God formed the mountains and the wind. There's a statement right there. Psalm 92, God gave birth to the mountains. Psalm ninety five four. God owns the mountain peaks. When you see those mountains, you're looking at mountains that have been created by God. God takes full credit for those mountains. Now I'm listening to this guy who's doing a lecture on the mountains. I thought this would be interesting, where he thinks these mountains came from. Now, this is money we're going to be paying for people's education to get, by the way. He said these mountains were uh, 300 million years ago. And the way they got here is various weights. You had dual weights, and one weight pushed down, which pushed the other weight up. And I'm going, you've got to be kidding me. People will pay to listen to you? In other words, God has made a display of the mountains and the oceans. And every time you look at those mountains, you're looking at the same mountains that were looked at by Lewis and Clark. You're looking at the same mountains that were looked at by the Indians. You're looking at the same mountains that were there when God created them, and they display the power of God. What man has done with that is try to suppress that. They try to take that knowledge and put it down because the moment you realize these are displays of the power of God, the moment you realize I'm accountable to that God. But the song is right. Every time I hear a newborn baby cry or touch a leaf or see the sky, then I know why I believe When you see that sea surge or that wind howl, that lightning flash, you hear that thunder roar, you're seeing evidence of the power of God. I want you to remember this this week. When you look in that sky and see that sun, or you look at night and see the moon, you're looking at something that's been there since day four of creation. You're looking at the same sun Adam looked at. You're looking at the same moon Adam and Eve saw all the generations of people who've looked into the sky have seen the eternal power of God, and God says, I have programmed that into every human being, and they know of my existence. And finally, he said, I've given them knowledge of my divine nature. It's an interesting word, Theotase. Theotase, it's a word that means deity. He said, I've actually programmed into people the fact that they have evidence of my deity, My divine nature, I mean, when you look at the systematic order that we have in this planet, just the oxygen and the molecules... And you look at that stuff and you look at the intelligent design that is everywhere seen, everywhere we look at anything that's ever been created. You look at the architecture of this world and the planet that we're on. I mean, you look at the creation ability, the wisdom, the care that God has given to this world. It displays his divine deity, his divine power. No one's ever going to be able to claim that they didn't know about it. And that's why God says, only a fool is said in his heart there is no God. Only a fool. And he says, not only have I revealed these things, they're clearly seen. Don't miss that in the text. They're clearly seen. So I don't care what a person says. The fact of the matter is, deep down in their hearts, they've clearly seen the truth. There is God, a sovereign, holy, righteous God, And Paul says, as I begin this gospel, I want you to know, to have a relationship with this God, you need the righteousness of God found by faith alone in Christ alone. Otherwise, that sovereign God's wrath is upon you. Years ago, I read a book about scientists who believe. Moody Press published the book. It contained 21 stories of 21 scientists who believed in Jesus Christ. And one story in the book was the story of Alexander Semyonov. Now, he was an atheist who lived in the Soviet Union. This country was known for atheism, and really, it's President Putin who's opened up Russia to religious freedom. That's a fact. Under President Putin in Russia, there have been Bible churches that have been, I know of one out of Colorado, a couple of them that have been established in Russia because President Putin has opened up Russia for freedom of thinking. But back when Semyonov was there, it wasn't that way. So he told his own story of how he came to faith in Christ. He said he lived next door to an elderly lady who invited him into her home, and there he saw a painting of the crucifixion. Jesus Christ hanging on a cross he said she somewhat explained it but she didn't give a full explanation for it as he said as a young man I would often walk in fields and I'd walk through the woods and I would look at magnificent scenery he said my parents took me to art galleries when we would go to art galleries I would see the artist and the names of the artist who painted beautiful scenes But he said, that caused me to wonder, well, who's the great artist that created the scene for that artist to paint? When he got to college, he studied architecture. He would compare forms and structures in nature with the great architects, and he concluded there must be a supreme architect who's designed all this. He said, I read all of the atheistic literature that was in Russia, but in reading the atheistic literature, it informed me of the beliefs of Christians. And he said, while I was in college, I found a group of believers, and he ended up trusting Jesus Christ. Alexander Semyonov is a living example of Romans one twenty. God has put within man the knowledge of himself, even if that person lives in a country that says there is no God. And lots of times, you'll hear the argument, well, what about those poor natives back in the jungles of Tanganyika? I mean, they've never heard, they're without excuse. Nobody's going to get before God and have an excuse. That prepositional phrase is a forensic meaning. And what Paul is saying here is, no man will be able to get before the Lord and make a legal defense when they get before God that they didn't know. God can hold every human accountable because every human has been created in the image of God, every human has been programmed with an intuitive realization of the existence of God, and God will be perfectly just and perfectly right if He pours out his wrath on ungodly, unrighteous people. I read an interesting story from the life of Donald Gray Barnhouse. actually, it's pretty fascinating. It happened young, when Barnhouse was a young minister. Barnhouse said he was once challenged by a man who was a member of a cult who didn't believe in hell. Barnhouse said, he was asked, do you believe in hell? And Barnhouse said, yes, I do. He said, in fact, I think you should spell hell with a capital letter, just like you spell any other city in the United States, because it is a real place. Well, the man threw Barnhouse a curve. He said, would you take a live animal and throw it in fire to watch it burn? Barnhouse said, I thought about that. He said, I thought, no, I wouldn't do that. Well, the man followed that up and said to Barnhouse, do you think God would be worse than you would be to an animal with a human? Bardow said, I didn't know quite for sure how to answer that then. But he said, I do now. He said, If I knew that an animal was spreading a fatal disease to loved ones, I'd do it in a minute. He said, If I knew that a man was hurting little innocent children, I'd be happy to throw him into fire if I knew that people were turning other people in the way of eternal damnation, if I knew that people were turning away people into ways that would bring them into eternal disaster, he said, I'd throw them in a fire in a minute. If I saw someone who was a rapist or a liar or a thief who would steal from innocent people, drug addicts, And they would kill innocent people for what they have. He said, I'd throw them in a fire, wouldn't bat an eye. You see, that's what's happening here. The world's lost sight of this. The world has lost sight of how righteous God is. It's ungodly, unrighteous people that have no fear of God. And God says, you reject my son... My wrath is aimed at you. I'm revealing it right now, and you'll end up condemned. That's what Paul says in Romans. Let's pray. If you've never trusted Jesus Christ as Savior, right now would be a perfect opportunity for you to do it. Right where you sit. This is business between you and God. Just admit the truth. You're a sinner. And invite Jesus Christ into your life to be your personal Savior. He'll give you the righteousness you need. And you'll be out from under the wrath of God. Father, thank you for your program. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for Jesus Christ. Lord, he took, man, he took our sin. He took your wrath. And this communion service beautifully illustrates that. I pray as we go through that service this morning, we'll have a sense about the solemnity of that. In Jesus' name, amen.